0: Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Good morning. It's good to be back with you guys this Sunday. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and turn to Ephesians uh, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians this morning, and actually we're going to be in the book of Ephesians for uh, hopefully the rest of the summer. Um, I was, As I was thinking about which book I, I wanted us to study and to go through and to hear God from, uh, it's just the book of Ephesians is, is a short book. It's only six chapters, but it is incredibly rich and dense and deep, and it's uh, theology, in, in, in its exaltation of the person of Jesus, and its high view on the church. The book of Ephesians is all about God's people and what God is doing through his people in the midst of the world, and I just figured what a, what a great book uh, to go through and to walk through uh, so that we have an understanding of who our head is as the church and who we are as the body of Christ where our identity lies. And so um, I'm looking forward to working through this book. I'm already in my study and preparation of it. Um, it has been an incredible blessing. So I pray that it is the same for um, all of you, that this book uh, blesses you and, uh, and helps you in your walk with Jesus. Uh, so we're gonna be in Ephesians. I'm gonna go ahead and read our text this morning and then say a brief prayer. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we're going to read to you verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. of his glory and i pray that the lord would add a blessing to the reading uh, and hearing of his word if you would pray with me uh, this morning our father in heaven we come to you and we ask that uh, in these next few minutes you would speak deeply to each and every single one of us psalm 119:130 says the unfolding of your words gives light It imparts understanding to the simple. Father, I pray that you would shed light in dark areas of our lives, dark areas of our understanding, uh, maybe ways in which we have misrepresented you uh, due to uh, our own imaginations, due to our own experiences. I pray that we would see you clearly as much as possible through the scriptures this morning, and that you would impart understanding uh, to the simple, Uh, which is all of us included here today, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've ever been part of a group project, you know that it doesn't matter how many people are involved in that group project, there are only two types of people in that group. Uh, There is the, the one person that does everything, all of the work which I did not fit into that category in, in high school and stuff. And then you have the second group of people which receive all of the benefits from the work that the one person put into. Some of you in high school or middle school now know exactly what I'm talking about. It comes to that group science project. Uh, some of you guys know what that's like uh, at work. Um, but you know there's always that one person and then there's always the rest of the people. So there's the one person that does everything and the one person that receives Everything based on the work of the other person. Well, what Paul is about to uh, lay out before us is that there is, uh, there is one person or there is one being that does all of the work of salvation and there is a group of people that receive all of its benefits. There is not a single uh, factor that we add to the benefits of salvation but simply to receive it to respond to it and to receive it. And Paul lays out that um, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is responsible entirely for our salvation. So if you take away anything this morning from our reading in these 14 verses, and and I wish that I could get into every little nitty gritty of these texts uh, because there is a lot happening here. In fact, in the original language, Paul uh, can hardly take a breath. There's no grammatical breaks at all. In, verse, in, in, the, in verses 3 through 12, it's just one big run-on sentence. An English teacher would have a field day uh, with these verses here. Uh, there's no pauses, no nothing. It is as if Paul has just discovered something absolutely wonderful, and he can't hardly breathe as he explains to the church at Ephesus or the surrounding regions in Asia Minor what they have in God and everything that they have received, not based on what they've done or what they can do, but, every, but based on the person and work of the Godhead. So, uh, unfortunately, I can't get into everything, but I do want to point out, if you take away anything, uh, my, my main point is salvation is entirely of God. I've entitled uh, these next three sermons, New Life, because uh, when we think about salvation, salvation really is new life. Salvation is not just something as a descriptor for the believer in the church, but it absolutely changes everything in your life. So when you encounter God and God opens up your eyes, he uh, bestows new life on you. And so Paul, uh, in these Verses 3 through 12 is going to explain how that new life comes about. So if salvation is entirely of God, that begs the question, how is it that salvation is entirely of God? How does that work? Well, the text here reveals three ways that salvation is entirely of God. And I want to go ahead and unpack those three ways this morning. The first way that we find that salvation is entirely of God is that God the Father adopts us into his family. God the Father adopts us into his family. Look at verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So that's not uh, the spiritual blessings Paul's referring to right here. Is not not in contrast to earthly material blessing. It actually um, refers to all the gifts, all the blessing that comes from the Spirit of God. So what he's saying here is he's already setting us up for this Trinitarian framework in which salvation is bestowed by the persons of the Godhead when he says that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been given to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. On the surface, the adoption of God the Father uh, as uh, that he has bestowed on us to be his children, it might not capture our hearts right away. It might not cause us to be in awe or strike us in the way that it should. And I think that's partly due to the fact uh, that most of the world, uh, and sadly and unfortunately, most Christian uh, Christians individually and as churches and religions, a lot of other religions, if you take a look into them, teach one basic thing, and that is everybody is a ch- child of God. Everybody's a child of God. By, by simply being a human, that constitutes you as child of God. doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter... Uh, How you represent God, it doesn't even matter what you believe about God. If you are created by God, it constitutes child of God. But I think what most people do in this case is they confuse image of God with child of God. Right? So we learn in Genesis chapter 1 through 2 uh, that. Uh, by our very creation, we are stamped with the image of God. We are made in his likeness. And now uh, theologians uh, have different, uh, they spectate on, on kind of what that means to be made in the image of God. Is it our function? Uh, is it is it our spiritual capacity? Is it, is it our psychology? So theologians don't agree with what that exactly means. I think it can mean all of those things. But we are made in the image of God, every single human being. But just because every single human being is made in the image of God does not constitute child of God. And Paul makes that very clear. We're actually going to see that in chapter 2 in our study of Ephesians, that there is uh, two different categories, and there's only two categories. There's child of wrath, child of disobedience, and then child of God. Child of God is bestowed upon us, not because we uh, just are entitled to it, but because God the Father, before the foundation of the world, according to Paul, sovereignly elected us to be his child. Sonship, daughtership, and yeah, I made I made daughtership up. That's that's not actually a word. It comes from being adopted. Uh, into the family of God. The word adopted that Paul uses here was a Greco-Roman word that was used uh, when a high official in Roman society wanted to adopt a, some, a son, typically a son, uh, but in this case, uh, we're going to see it's son and daughter, uh, typically adopted someone who was not part of the family originally. So the reason why salvation in terms is uh, use adoption here is because adoption says that God has taken a foreigner or an outsider and he has made them a part of his family. The Bible nowhere teaches that everyone is a child of God, but that child of God is a gift from God uh, according and through his electing grace, according to his own purposes, and in verse uh, 6, to the praise of his glory. And just so uh, we're interpreting scripture with scripture, uh, Romans 8.15, if you want to jot this down, I'm not going to make you guys flip back and forth uh, through the Bible, but um, Romans 8.15, Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and as daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. First John 3, 1 John 3.1 one see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we see the pinnacle of God's love is found in his adoptive uh, act towards those who believe In Christ, towards those who are in Christ Jesus. The fact that we know God as Father is not something that everybody gets to know apart from being in the Son, and so he moves towards us, and he actually reveals himself to us uh, through the most intimate terms that we could possibly imagine, right? Uh, To be a parent, to be a father, those of you who know what what it's like to be a father, to be a mother, to be a parental figure towards somebody uh, is to feel and experience experience and to have such a deep intimate love and affection towards your children. And so when God reveals himself as father uh, to those who are his child, that means God is moving towards us in a particular way not everybody knows him as. And so to have him as our father is to receive a gift from God. Uh, That is what it means to be adopted by God. And just a few application points here at this, at this time as we're considering the fatherliness of God. It's good to keep in mind that God is a good father. That our Father in heaven, the Father that Jesus taught his disciples to begin their daily prayers with, our Father in heaven, he is a good father. It's good to remind ourselves of that. And I think it's good to remind ourselves of the goodness of the Father because some of us grew up with unloving, unkind, and indifferent fathers. Maybe you didn't have a father growing up. Maybe your relationship with your father is strained. Or maybe your earthly father is no longer here. Maybe you had a great father, but even the best of fathers had their failures and couldn't reach the fatherliness of God. But can I just encourage you and remind you that you have a perfectly loving Father uh, in heaven who knows and sees everything about you. There's not a detail in your life that has missed him. And not only does he know everything about you, but he moves towards you in perfect love an imperfect kindness, an imperfect gentleness. If you, if you have a hard time uh, understanding the, the goodness of the Father, God's fatherliness, um, if, if you grew up uh, kind of like me where, where fatherhood was not modeled very well, then what happens, what we tend to do with the fatherhood of God is we take the, the image of our earthly fathers and we apply it to the heavenly Father. If you're like me, then, then by the Spirit of God, you've had to, as you've walked with Jesus and as you've called on God's name as Father, you've had to kind of ask God to root out some of the, 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 the notions and, and false ideas of what a father is like. And it's difficult sometimes to go to God as your father. Glenn mentioned this morning that God, God invites us as his children to come pray to him and actually delights in us. As a father delights in his child over and over again in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, that is how God is described and God is described as, in some cases, singing and delighting over his children. And so we need to remind ourselves that our Father in heaven is not indifferent and that he he actually hears us when we're speaking and he's not going to abandon us. In fact, God is known in the Old Testament as the Father of the fatherless. And in love, he predestined you. Look at that verse in verse 5. Paul says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself according to the purpose of his will. He did not adopt you according to your performance or how, or how lovely you were or what you could add to his life. And sometimes that's our experience too with our earthly fathers is that we kind of have this feeling like, like my, his, the love is contingent upon how well I am doing on how good I'm doing. We've, I mean, we've all felt that kind of sense of disappointing the people that we love. Look, you can't disappoint God the Father because God the Father knew everything that you were going to do and how you were going to fail and how you were going to fall short way before you even existed. Before the foundation of the world, he adopted you. He saw everything and he said, yeah, I want that one in my family. I want want that one. I want want the one that's stumbling, the one that's frustrated, the one that's got all the questions, the one that keeps running away, the prodigal. I want that child to be in my family to represent my name. He's a father who stays and even runs and embraces you when you've fallen in sin. I love the picture that Jesus gives us in Luke about the prodigal father. That's how Jesus is describing his father, your father in Jesus. Last point I wanna make about the fatherhood of God is that not only is God a good father, but God is a father of many. Notice the us in verses three through six. Uh, we miss this. It's easy to miss this in our, uh, in our culture, in our age today. We think of salvation and knowing God in terms of the self, just the self. And that's why you have so many people whose relationship with God actually sounds more of, uh, of kind of a low-key friendship that nobody else can know about and nobody else can enter into. That's why so many people are like, man, I've got me and God and I'm good. I don't need God's family. But notice the us's in verses 3 through 6, um, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, plural, and, and the Greek word used for, there for sons can be applied to daughters as well. It's, it's, it's one that encompasses both. And so we see in these verses and all throughout Ephesians is the emphasis is not on I, but on us and we. Which means that you have a good father in heaven who is not just a father of one, which means you're not an only child. You're not an only child. Too many people, again, I've talked to, and they want God as their father, but they want nothing to do with his family. And they don't realize that God, when he calls you to new life, he calls you to a new community. He calls you to to be a part of a new people. Right, that we should be the, we should be holy and blameless before Him. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a child of God not meeting with, uh, loving. Uh, celebrating, caring for, or orienting their lives around the family of God. I mean, I have, and and can I just say, I've only been here for three Sundays, so I don't know, maybe there's a bait and switch coming, I'm not really sure. Um, But I have, I've been here for three Sundays, and and, and I had, my second Sunday here, I had a deacon approach me and say, if there's anything that you need, let me know. I've I've been to a handful of churches prior, and I've never had somebody actually approach me and say, if you need anything, let me know. And not even just with me. I mean, this is, I, the way I've seen all of you guys interact with each other. And again, this is, I, this is a part of the sermon. I just want to commend you guys. And um, I have heard and seen the way that you guys care for one another and that you guys operate as a unit and as a family, not just as individuals coming together. So when we're adopted, we're adopted into a family. And that family is invited into our lives and our walk with God. We are called out of our sin and individualism in the world and called into a new community and a family that represents his values and mission here on earth. And as I mentioned earlier, Ephesians has the highest view on the church. We're going to see how uh, Paul describes the church. It's the body of Christ. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It is the family of God. And we are going to see the priority of the people of God in community and unity with one another as we continue our study. So I'll end this section here and just ask a question. Are you in constant fellowship, doing life with one another, building each other up in life and in love? Or do you just simply sit next to one another? It's easy to sit next to someone. It's difficult to serve the person you're sitting next to. So God the Father adopts us into his family. Another way that we see salvation is wholly of God, entirely of God, is that God the Son redeems and forgives us from our sin. Look at verses 7 through 10. I'm going to try to go ahead and and wrap up the next uh, back end of that because I know that took up a lot of time. In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, into the position of sonship and daughtership. As, uh, and then, not only that, but we see that God the Son redeems us through his blood and forgives, forgives us um, of all our trespasses. So let's, let's take a look at redemption first. What does redemption mean? What does it mean that we've been redeemed? I'm going to try not to gloss through uh, uh, everything here. I'm going to try to go ahead and pick apart uh, each word so that we get the fullness of what Paul is communicating. So what does redemption mean in the Son? Well, in some instances, what we have, uh, the word redemption can refer to God's act of deliverance. It means deliverance from slavery and out of bondage into freedom and into life. Uh, when we see the word redemption, most used in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, we see it in connection with God's greatest act of deliverance, which was the deliverance out of slavery in Egypt. That was the pinnacle of God's redemptive work, his delivering his people out of the bondage of Egypt. And really, all of the Old Testament, if you just, real quick footnotes, all of the Old Testament is basically God's redeeming his people over and over and over again. You see him redeeming them out of Egypt. You see him redeeming them out of Babylon, out of Assyria. You see them redeem, It's, it's just constant redemption is the theme of the Old Testament. Is God's just constantly getting his people out of trouble. And so, uh, in, in one context and setting, redemption could refer to uh, the delivering out of uh, slavery. And, and then in another sense, the word redemption is used to, uh, 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 to refer to payment. It's payment. It is paying a ransom price. Uh, and, and again, it largely depends on the context, but I think it's fair to say when Paul says here in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, I think it's fair to say that Paul means both. Paul takes the idea, and again, commentators can't agree on this passage. And they're trying to figure out, well, does redemption mean deliverance? Does it mean paying a cost? And I think when we look at the work of Jesus on the cross, I think we see both. I think that's why people can't understand and figure out which one, because I think Paul here is saying, look, we have received, we have been delivered out of our sin into freedom, and our sin has been paid for. The ransom cost has been paid for. And again, some of this stuff, uh, it it can seem a little underwhelming, but it only seems underwhelming if you don't realize that every sin referred to in the Bible is actually referred to as, as as a master. Right? Some people, uh, especially in our culture, uh, like to think of sin as something we can befriend or something that we can manage, but the problem with managing sin is that sin is a master, and the master is not going to be managed by anybody. Jesus said that if you practice sin, here's, again, here's another notion that I think we, we kind of lose in our culture and in our church world today, is that Jesus said if you practice sin, you're a slave to it, John eight thirty four. There's no such thing really of entirely, uh, of, of complete autonomy of yourself. You are mastered uh, either by the master or you're mastered by the slave master that is sin. Uh, Paul puts it this way, In Romans 6 16 through 20. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves you are slaves of the one whom you obey either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from the sin have become slaves of righteousness. Again, haven't become set free, so you don't attain this freedom by working your way to this freedom, you've been called out into freedom by God the Father through his adoption, through the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. So you've been called to freedom, so now you are slaves of righteousness. I am speaking, Paul says in verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Here's the point. We will never ever see the need of deliverance from our sin if we continue to see it as our friend. We'll, we'll never, it will always be underwhelming to see the work of Jesus, his redemptive work into delivering us out of our sin. If we continue to see our sin as no big deal. If we continue to see it, um, I don't know if you guys have seen these videos on YouTube. I, I get stuck in these YouTube trails. Like sometimes I'll be at work and I'm just sitting there like needing to get something done. But the next thing you know, a koala bear shows up on my like recommended uh, list. And I'm just like, oh, let me watch this koala bear. And the next thing you know, I'm watching like two gorillas fight each other in the zoo. I go off into some weird stuff sometimes on YouTube. Uh, but sometimes I see these videos where these people own tigers. Right? Or they own these exotic cats, or they own, or they they own this bear, and they're just kind of playing and toying with this animal, and it's cute, and it's domesticated, and they've taught it how to be friendly, and, and it's just a really great relationship. And the next thing you know, I'm finding news articles on Google on how that played out for them. Right? It doesn't end well for the person who tried to domesticate a wild animal, and and just as that doesn't play out well, it does not. The result of us domesticating our own sin, domesticating our lifestyle that doesn't match up to the Father, the God the Father and God the Son, and doesn't match up to the freedom that we've been called to, it doesn't result well. In fact, Paul says that the wages of sin, Romans 3.23, is death. It doesn't matter if the death occurs the moment after you sin and after you walk and practice that sin, or if it happens 10, 15, 20 years from now. I promise you, because I've seen sin, every single one of us have seen sin played out in the lives of others, in the lives of our own, and it's never resulted in anything good, godly, true, or beautiful. Not once. And so, to know that we have been redeemed that we've been delivered through the work of Christ on the cross from the bondage and the mastery of sin over our lives is to, should produce awe and fear and wonder and freedom in our Christian walk. If we're going to see the beauty and worth of Jesus Christ, it will require to see the ugliness of our sin and how much it costs God to deliver us from its bondage. Every bit of heaven was poured out so that we could be lifted up out of the pit, as Psalm 32 puts, and put into broad places where we can freely worship and love God as a child. You might ask yourself, why did Jesus have to die? I don't know if that's ever crossed your mind. Why did it take death? Well, put simply, because God is just, God is not like us. You say, couldn't God just look over it all? Imagine if a judge were to just look over the felon in court and say, you know what, it's not a big deal. Especially if the perpetrator affected you you imagine if your car got stolen and wrecked and, you know, driven off into the water and you just, could, you know, you had to get a new car. Can you imagine if you went to court and the judge was like, you know, I know what they did was bad. But I think we can all agree, you know, in, in the name of niceness and goodness, in the name of just, justice, we're going to go ahead and overlook this offense. You made a mistake. Imagine the thoughts that would run through your mind at that point. So now imagine your thoughts, your imperfect, finite self, trying to execute perfect judgment on somebody else because you know perfect judgment did not occur just there. Now imagine a holy God, infinite, all wise, all powerful, and all good. If God is good and if God is love, God has to be just. And so the reason why Jesus had to die is so that justice could be met and so that love could actually be fulfilled. And so every sin, every transgression, Every single moment that your life has been representing as a rebelliousness to God, because that's what sin is. It's absolute treason against the one who created you. It is failing to represent and be what you were created to be. All of that got poured out on Christ, and that's why Paul says it is through his blood. Without the shedding of blood, the author of Hebrews writes, there is no forgiveness of sin. And the blood of animals could never completely atone once for all for the sin of our past present and future and notice in verse 8 this forgiveness and this redemption is lavished upon us it's completely lavished upon us i mean think about that you are in adopted by god put in Christ the Son, and then all of a sudden, get this, sometimes what we do is we we come, we see this, our eyes are opened, our hearts are awakened, we We gravitate toward this. We could think about that moment, think about that moment that we receive full forgiveness and redemption in Christ, and then somewhere along the way, we think I've blown it, and now I need to work or attain to another uh, measure of forgiveness or redemption, and Paul says it has been lavished upon you, which means there is enough forgiveness and redemption for your past sins. When you came to Christ, there's enough forgiveness for your present sins. Right now, the stuff that you're stuck in, the stuff that you keep going back to, over and over and over again, there's forgiveness for your present, and there's also forgiveness, forgiveness for your future. When it has been lavished upon you, it has covered everything. It has covered your past, present, and future. And that, Paul says, has been given to you in Christ. So God the Son redeems and forgives through the substitutionary death that he voluntarily took on and set And the joy set before him was your freedom in your heart. The last way, and the final way that we see in our text this morning that salvation is entirely of God is God the Holy Spirit keeps us for eternity. God the Holy Spirit keeps us for eternity. Look at verses 11 through 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This one might be a bomb to some of your anxious souls. I can't tell you how many people, uh, solid brothers and sisters in the Lord, who struggle with their assurance Uh, of their salvation, who struggle uh, with, with am I in, you know, they feel like they're in Christ one day and then they kind of mess up and then they don't know if they're in Christ the next day and it's just this constant what if, what if, what if. Just as God has redeemed you out of freedom, out of your sin, he's also redeemed you into assurance, into rest, into knowing that you are kept. When God starts something, again, the whole point of this message is what? It, salvation is entirely of God. It's not salvation is some of God and then some of us. It's not, salvation is not God does your, his part and then you do your part. It is from God to, from start to finish. God does not adopt you, forgive and redeem you. You shed his blood just to let you be want, lost once more. See how God's purposes permeates, verse 12. It says, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ, um, not, sorry, not verse 12, just all of the, all of the passage actually, verses 3 through 12, uh, we see according to the purpose of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, according to the purposes of him who works all things, things according to the counsel of his will. That counsel of his will, the will, the purpose of God is that you would actually make it safely home with him. If you read John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer was that we would be kept, you can go back and read this later on if you want, that we would be kept and that we would be where he is. Jesus' blood was too costly for it to cover you and then let you just escape out of him who called you. If God so purposes to adopt and forgive us, how could he purpose to lose us? Look at the words in verses 13 and 14. And and, and here's, uh, there's a number of passages we can go to in scripture to look at the eternal security, the final perseverance of the saints in Christ. There's a number of texts we go to, but I would be okay with camping out in this text if I, you know, just to say, look, uh, when god makes when anybody makes a promise uh, you're not using words like guarantee look at look at verse 13 let's just in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed him were sealed with the promised, look at seal and promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. So we see words like seal and guarantee as it applies to our salvation. And when we think and consider about the work of the Holy Spirit, it is applying everything that God the Father, God the Son has done in redemptive history to our hearts, indwelling us, teaching us, leading us, and not just leading us um, every day to God, but leading us home to God. God is the the, the good shepherd who finds his sheep and brings them home. He doesn't lose them. In John chapter 10, Jesus says that all whom the Father has given to me, I will never lose. That no one's ever going to pluck them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Charles Spurgeon once said, All the purposes of man have been defeated, but not the purposes of God. The promises of man may be broken. Many of them are made to be broken. But the promises of God shall all be fulfilled. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Not you, not the person sitting next to you, Not the person in your life who expects you to fail, expects you to be whatever. Nobody but Jesus commands our destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. If we cannot bank on the truth of final perseverance, then God has lied and God cannot fully save. And that is antithetical against everything Scripture teaches. I just want to end with this final invitation. As we go through Ephesians... Anytime you read the Bible, there's going to be some stuff that's going to make you a little uncomfortable, a little unnerving, a little bit weird. And believe me, I've got to preach it. Like, I've got to sit here and actually, like, you know. So, but while I pre- I love these passages because it teaches of the sovereign electing love of God over his particularly redeemed people. And that makes some people uncomfortable. That God would sovereignly choose who would be his child and who would be redeemed. But while I wholeheartedly affirm that and while I wholeheartedly love every truth that's been presented in Scripture, it is also true that while salvation is entirely of God, it is equally true that the gospel demands a response. It demands a response. And that, and and trust me, that's a little bit unnerving for me because it's like I don't know how that works. I have yet to meet a person uh, that can actually adequately, adequately explain to me. It doesn't matter whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian or you're somewhere in between. Neither side have adequately explained to me uh, or anybody uh, how it works. All I have to do and all I have to know and all we should know is that the Bible, it proclaims that truth and then it demands a response from us. Look at the formula in verse 13. In him you also, get this, when you heard the word of truth. You have heard the word of truth. The word of truth, what is the word of truth? Well, well we just look through the word of truth. The word of the truth is, is that God saves entirely. It's all entirely of God. And then Paul says the gospel of your salvation and believed in him and believed were sealed with the holy spirit so there's this hearing there's this hearing of the gospel message and then there is a response of belief on the part of those who hear it everybody that you come into contact with anyone who comes into this room on sunday mornings will hear the gospel and they will hear it clearly and they will hear it passionately preached and they will see it in the lives of of you all and, and, and lord willing in the lives and the life of me and my wife but look while Everybody has, will, will eventually, who comes across a believer, will hear the gospel. It is, it, it is up to an individual to respond to that gospel. And there's only two ways you can respond to the gospel you can accept it by repentance from your sin to Christ in faith, or you can reject it. There's only two options, there's no in between. And sometimes to reject the gospel isn't to just flat out say no to it. Sometimes to reject the gospel is to be um, indifferent, apathetic, shrug your shoulders. If you shrug your shoulders at the gospel, that is a rejection of the gospel. Eh. No, 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 no. The king of the universe demands a response. And our response we are responsible for. And we will give an account to that response one day. So I just want to ask you this morning, have you responded to the gospel's demands of your response? Have you put your faith in Christ? Have you repented of your sin and turned to the one who forgives and bore the sin. If you haven't, then I want to just express that the door of salvation is constantly open. And you can walk through that door. Jesus says, I am the door. You don't walk through anybody next to you. You don't walk through anything about you. You don't walk through me. You don't walk, walk through I'm one of the elders. You walk directly through Jesus Christ, the open door of your salvation, and you say, yes, Lord. I am yours. Let's pray together. Father, I I am, I am overjoyed that I, that I could, that we could come to you as Father in the name of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit because of your work. I pray that you would strengthen those here who believe, who are your disciples, who are your children. You would encourage and strengthen. And those who are not, you would make them your child today. And we pray that as we live as your children, we would live as our Father. We would mimic you in all things. We love you. I pray that you would bless us, keep us, make your face to shine upon us. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at FCCSOBO.org or on our Facebook page by searching... Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.